Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Word, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. It is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to, con- to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the, te- the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come again to your word and your word preached that you would give us faith. Father, that you would train us in righteousness, that you would correct us, rebuke us. Father, and that we would be fed the, the pure spiritual milk of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first part deals with uh, the qualifications for the office of elder. And we've made it to the last phrase in verse 3, free from the love of money. So this passage, along with others in the scripture, give us qualifications and characteristics of men who may serve as overseers in the church. The, this office is, along with the office of deacon, um, which we'll get to next time, are the two offices of the church. In our Presbyterian polity, we recognize uh, two orders of elder, but one office, uh, ruling elder and teaching elders, uh, the latter of which are commonly referred to as pastors. As we have made our way through uh, this passage, we see that the, the bar is high, that is set for overseers, for elders, um, but the bar is not sinlessness. Uh, as I said before, every man would be disqualified in the office um, or disqualified from office if the bar was sinlessness. Only our Savior, who is the head and ruler of the church, who has delegated his authority to men, um, was without sin. It is he who makes us covenantally holy, and finally at our glorification truly holy, um, truly sinless. Until then, we struggle with our sinful nature, which still affects Christians, uh, though sin does not reign over them. The church officer must show some fruits, must show the fruits of that, that the gospel works, that the gospel has worked in him, that God has really 
truly done a work of grace in his heart. Uh, the first characteristic of the overseer of the elder or the elder of the church that we see today is that he is to be a man who is free from the love of money. Uh, this phrase in our English Bibles is simply one tidy word in the Greek, a philargaron, a not phil lover argaron of money. He is not a lover of money. So on the question of a man's relationship to money, we as wealthy and comfortable Americans may have some significant blind spots. Um, Being um, comfortable and essentially able to buy everything we need and some things we merely want, um, we have a strange relationship with money and a unique view of wealth because of that. Um, Is a man, a few questions, is a man who spends his time investing his money a lover of money? Is a man who makes a lot of money a lover of money? Is a man who obsesses about the littleness of his bank accounts a lover of money? Is a man who spends quickly every bit of the money he earns a lover of money? Is a man who hoards everything he makes a lover of money? Is a man who complains about the poverty of the poor a lover of money? Um, Is a man who has refined tastes a lover of money? I think in each of those scenarios, the answer could be both yes and no. A man who invests may be prudent, or he may be a lover of money. A man who makes a lot of money may be industrious, or he may be a lover of money. A man who spends everything he earns may be content to make only what he needs, or he might be a lover of money. A man who hoards what he makes Um, could be a good saver, a prudent man, or he's simply an ungenerous lover of money. A man who complains about the poverty of the poor may be genuinely concerned about his neighbor, or he may be a lover of money like many of our politicians, like Bernie Sanders have proven. A man who has refined taste those aged cheeses and fine wines and caviar may truly delight in good quality tastes, in craftsmanship. Or he may just be a lover of money. So how do we define then a lover of money? I think what can be said is this. If there is a competition between your pursuit of godliness and your pursuit of money, you may be on the path to being a lover of money. If there's competition between your pursuing money and your pursuing godliness. This indeed is what Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves Do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That final statement, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, teaches us that we go after treasure on earth or treasure in heaven, what we go after, whether it's the 
treasure on earth or treasure in heaven, shows us our heart's strongest desires. For many, the pursuit of godliness and good works that glorify God and produce treasure in heaven indicates that they have a a heart simply set on desiring God. For others, their relentless ambition to make money, their dissatisfaction, um, their dissatisfaction with overabundance indicates that they have hearts set on earthly treasures, they, that they are lovers of money. And so, honestly examine yourself. Do you long for godliness more than you long for the earthly ease that comes with money? I mean, honestly ask yourself that question. Is your happiest day each month payday or the Lord's day? I mean, think about it. What gives you a skip in your step, you know, when you ka-ching that check into your bank account or when you come to hear about the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Are you more comforted by a wage increase or by the gospel? being reminded of the the promises of God. Does your mood and commitment to your family rise and fall with your bank account? Even assessing what you envy can indicate your own heart. Do you envy the wicked and rich? Or do you envy the godly, those who are poor in spirit? Are you happiest when you have the new gadget or happiest when you conquer a besetting sin? Children, children, think about that. Do you live for stuff? Or do you live to please God? Those things that are, are often in competition with one another. Scripture says that we are to have a particular kind of ambition. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That should be our ambition, is to be pleasing to Him. Is that what you long for, to be pleasing to God, to really walk in a manner worthy of Christ, to search His Word so that you may may do what He says? Or does stuff have a hold of you? Loving money and loving God, think about this, loving money and loving God are antithetical. They do not fit together. You cannot do both at the same time. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Ouch. Parents, if I were to ask your children, what gets you excited? What gets you animated? What gets you joyful? What would they say? Kids are so honest, right? They, they see things. Would they say college football? It's that time of year. I got to pound on college football for a while, right? Would they say good food and vacations? You know, that's when dad is really joyful. Would they say his work, his job? That's when dad is really joyful when he can when he has a good day of work. How many would say? It's to know God and know His Word. That's what excites my, my dad. That's what excites my, my mom. Right Later in the Apostle Paul's letter to Pastor Timothy, the topic returns to wealth. 
And the Holy Spirit teaches us that there is a competition for our affections. Right? So often we see money as a means of great gain, but godliness of, of just little import. So often you and I seek for comfort in the way the godless seek for comfort rather than seeking for true comfort as God has laid it out. 1 Timothy 5, 6. But godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. If we have food and covering. Now think of that small amount of the things you actually have. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, those who want, those who have this desire, this affection toward riches, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, that desire again, longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, but flee from these things. You man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Flee from the love of money and desire godliness. What do you long for? What, what has a hold of your heart? The overseer, the elder, is not to be a lover of money. He truly longs for godliness and understands that without holiness, no man will see God. He, he longs more to properly love others and to love God, and that love casts out and forbids a love for money. Right? And, and you see, that's essential to the work of the eldership. A man who loves money will not see the necessity of exhorting himself, let alone exhorting others. He'll judge a man merely by his ability to make money. He will think that um, most of the work of the elder board is, is, is really just making a mountain out of a molehill. All this... This, you know, godliness stuff. Can't we just get along with people and encourage them to be industrious? Why in the world do we care about what words a man uses to belittle his wife in private? You know, they're just words and anyways, that, that aggressiveness is what makes him a good lawyer. In fact, we, we shouldn't mince words about the love of money. The lover of money is a covetous man who is an idolater. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Calvin writes on this, Covetousness is always idolatry in whosoever it be found. So that a man that gives himself and his heart to the muck of this world will forget God and have such a confidence in his money that he will make an idol of it. He will put his trust in it and it will be his refuge. 
That's the very allure of money, isn't it? All of us feel this. We believe it to be a refuge. Those who find their refuge in anything outside of God are idolaters. God, not money, is our refuge and our strength, the very present help in trouble. God is. Not money. Not money. I know you don't believe that, but that's what Scripture says, and you have to come to believe that. Money is not your refuge. It's not my refuge. God alone is a refuge. There are indications that a man is not a lover of money, and it is not that he doesn't have any of it. That's not necessarily an indication of one thing or the other. Sometimes that man who doesn't have any money is more a lover of money than the rich man. The indications that you are not a lover of money is that you don't trust wealth, as I've pointed out above. Two, that you are generous with the wealth God has given you. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Proverbs 22.9. Third, you are more concerned to be rich in good works than you are to be rich. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. That's 1 Timothy 6. Fourth, there are indications that you are not a lover of money if you are content, even merely with food and covering. Uh, You are content with your daily bread. You're not a lover of money. Fifth, if you are a person who constantly reminds yourself that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, right? You have to remind yourself of this. Uh, You feel its temptation. You recognize its power and you understand your own weakness in the face of it, right? You have learned that loving money means forgetting God and you're sickened by that thought and familiar with that temptation, right? And then an indication that you are not a lover of money, men, is that you've convinced your wife of all those things too. You've convinced your wife of all those things too. You've taught your wife that money is not a refuge. And she needs to stop obsessing about money. One final word taken from Calvin's sermon on this passage to nail it down. For if... If we be tossed up and down with disquietude, that's a great word, disquietude, being upset, and um, that we think we are utterly undone if we have not our own resources, it is a token that God is out of credit and authority with us, right? If we need to have our own resources, then we begin to discredit God and his authority. That is the issue. The elder, the one who will be exhorting others to trust in God, cannot be a man who trusts in something other than God. 1 Timothy 3 next says this, verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, let me read my own translation of that passage. Ruling his own household well, having children who are in submission with all seriousness. But if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take, how will he care or take care of the church of God? 
don't be afraid of what Scripture says, unlike our modern translators. Our modern translators are afraid of what Scripture says. Manage in the place of rule is their attempt to soften this awkward situation where men, husbands, are told to leave. Uh, The elder must be an example of God's creation order. Adam first, then Eve. Put in place from the earliest days of creation. And any woman or child knows that there is great blessing in being ruled by a good ruler. Right? Part of the comfort all of us have in believing in Jesus Christ is that he is our Lord, our lawgiver, our husband, our head, our ruler. That's why it's so, so wonderful to be under Jesus Christ. To be ruled well is to be blessed. Of course, it goes without saying that to be ruled badly is, is to be cursed. When that which is supposed to be a blessing, is turned to evil use, it's doubly depressing. But those of you who have been harmed by those who have authority over you, you are taught by our culture then to reject all authority. Even God's, which is depicted as antiquated and harmful and oppressive. Rather than reject authority because of the abuse of authority, though, you should advocate for and pray for and long for good authority. Good authority. Like that of our Father in heaven. Like that of Jesus Christ over his church. The elder, before becoming a ruler in the church, must prove that he is a ruler over his own household. That includes his children, his wife, and any servants in that household, household employees. Again, Calvin summarizes this way, every master of a house has to know that God has set him in that place to know how to govern both wife and children and servants so that God may be honored amongst them. And all of them do him homage. And if a man can govern his own house well, it's a good trial of him. Right? If a man can govern his own house well, that's a good trial. He then goes on and puts it very simply. Now, if a man cannot govern two or three children, which are in his house, yea, when they are his own children, yet cannot keep them in subjection, but shall have them deaf to whatever he says, how can he govern those who are far off and be, as it were, men unknown to him? Yea, and such as will think themselves far smarter than him. And they think they have no need to be taught. How can he keep men in awe when his own wife will not be subject to him? In other words, if a man loses the respect of his wife and children and they are unwilling to follow his lead, whether it's because he's a tyrant or an abdicating wuss, he will never have the ability to respectfully rule in the church. He will rule there in much the same manner as he rules in his home. In fact, that's one of the scourges of the feminized church today, right? If you are the kind of man that has to go home and check with your wife before you cast a vote for anything in the elder board meeting, and they do that not because they want the wisdom of their wives, which is a good thing, 
but because they fear the wrath of their wives. If you have to do that, then you are disqualified. Their wives rule the roost. And we get all jokey at this point, right? And we break the tension with our, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But here's the word of God warning men who are unable to rule their households. They are disqualified from entering the offices of the church. Do you men have command authority in your homes? Command authority in your homes. You say yes, in regard to my children that is so, but, but not with my wife. That, that's not respectable. Well, household here includes all those in the household. To Abraham, remember what God said. God said to Abraham, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Men, does, does that make you uncomfortable? Are you trying not to make eye contact with your wife right now? Is she reproving you right now? Saying with her eyes, don't try it. Some of you are saying that to me right now with your eyes. I see it. Well, if so, you know, that's a horrible thing. A horrible thing because look at what that passage, Genesis eighteen nineteen, said. That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That is to be the glorious focus of his commanding. Keep the way of the Lord. What is so bad about that? Oftentimes that means encouraging your children and your wife when you see them living for the Lord. Encourage them still further. Right? Oftentimes it means rebuking your wife and your children, and correcting them when they are not living for the Lord. It means saying well done, and it means saying poorly done. Right? Here's the way. But if you have made a grand truce with your wife that she may correct you, but you may not correct her, or if you've made a decision to love your children by letting them find their own way, you have thrown off God's commands And you have gone your own way. Let's see if it goes well for you. There is to be order in our homes. And that begins with children and wives happily submitting to the man of the house. Now let me get back to something that Calvin said. He said, how can he keep men in awe when his wife will not be subject to him? Is that what we aim for to keep men and our wives and our children in awe? Well, yeah. Yes. We hold God in awe because he is perfect. He is every bit of godliness. We don't hold God in awe because he is mean. Because he's not mean. 
He's wrathful, yes, but he's not mean in a petty way. Your wife and your children, and if an elder, your church, should have a respect for your authority, for your office, even your person, based upon your example of godliness. Think of this statement about Moses. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What a strange thing to say that they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They aren't to do that, right? They should only believe in the Lord, but God's work through Moses, God's work in Moses, led the people to believe in him, to trust him. Oh, not, I mean, obviously not on the same level as trusting in Almighty God, but nonetheless, on some level, Moses had been used as a tool by God to demonstrate God's power, and because of that, the people respected him. Have you been used by God as a tool to demonstrate his power, men, in your home? Have you been used as a tool for God to demonstrate his power in your, in your home? Have you shown your children the power of prayer? Have you shown them the power of repentance? Have you shown them the Spirit's work in you? Have you done works that required great faith and trust? Have you shown them what it means to be teachable? Well, then you've shown them the power of God. You've shown them the very power of God and they should have a certain awe of you and ultimately of God. You would then have a godly and useful command authority in your home. Can you tell your wife no and she still trusts you? Can you tell your children no and they respond immediately? Do you have more of a chance of growing in godliness when you are absent than when you are present in your home? Are your sins a heavy burden to your household? Have you shown them more of the power of Satan than the power of God? Well, if that's so, then God says don't lead his household to church. And it makes every one of those who are called to leadership in the church tremble. He says, get your house in order first, then lead his family. If you can't rule one, you will not care for the other. The man whose house is not in order will rule wickedly in the church. He will rule wickedly in the church. Now, what does it mean that he keeps his children under control or in subjection with all dignity. I would say it means that his children are in control and under the father's control. That father manages his children. He does not neglect them and leave all the discipline to his wife. He does not exasperate them either by being heavy-handed, abusive, or nitpicking. George Knight, in his commentary on this passage, wrote, The subjection shown by the children must reflect the character of their father's leadership. It must be in all seriousness. Okay, the last part of that phrase, in all seriousness or dignity, there's some question about 
whether that refers to the father, to the child, or to the relationship between them. I believe because we're focused on the requirements of men for the office of elder, it's focused on their leadership. This man, with his children, with his wife, rules with all seriousness. He's a serious man when it comes to serious things. Right? He's, he's not a man who leads by manipulation or who refuses to lead at all. He does so and does so with all seriousness, and his household responds to his seriousness with humble and thankful obedience. Right? In Titus 1.6, uh, on a parallel passage, it, it deals with the requirements of the eldership as well. The Apostle Paul writes that the elder must be a man having children who believe. Okay, I can't help but think that that is an element of what Paul is, is saying in 1 Timothy 3. What man, I mean think about it, what man would say that he is managing his own household well when he has children in his home who refuse to profess his faith, to serve his God he serves, to attend and grow in the church where he serves? So to be in subjection, no doubt, must include that religious component, not just behavioral, right? A son who conforms behaviorally but rejects Christ reveals something about the character of his father's oversight and his household management. Um, Is he discipling those who are closest to him? Is he discipling those right under his nose? Calvin says on this front the following, that ministers' children must not be lawless. He requires this especially in that they behave themselves obediently and quietly. For if men see ministers' children haunters of taverns, walkers of streets, riotous players, peevish whore hunters, will not others, I pray you, with as little cost be as bad as they? When a preacher shall go up into the pulpit and cry out against wicked living and say the youth are past all shame, there is no modesty in them if his own children behave themselves worse than others or at the least be as bad as the best, do they not mock God and his doctrine? And I say that with fear and trembling. Yet it is not enough to condemn the children, but we must condemn the father also, he says when they suffer their children to do worse than all others. Finally, in our passage, we see two characteristics that, if lacking, lead this man to open himself and the church up to Satan's manipulations. He must not be a new convert, literally a neophyte, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. A new convert has not had years of sanctification to grind down his rough edges. Right? He has not had enough time to learn God's word. He has not had the years of God's discipline to lead him to humility. He needs to go through that school before he leads the church. The new convert has a tendency to have more zeal than wisdom. Right? That zeal can be refreshing, but it without wisdom is a tough ride. Zeal without wisdom is terrible. Calvin writes, For when a man begins to have some taste and smattering in any matter whatsoever, he thinks himself a great doctor. 
right? So true, especially with Google and cell phones and book reviews on Amazon. So ridiculous. The newly planted Christian, if given great authority, doesn't realize the burden of leadership. Perhaps he's happy to be finally recognized for what he is, a good man. And such a man will be of great use for the devil. He has not learned that responsibility is a terrible burden that requires great faith and great help from God. Uh, the neophyte does not fear leading the church. The, man, the, the mature man does fear. An overseer must have a good reputation, have good relationships, have the respect of those even outside the cho- church, those who are unbelievers. Um, he's got, in other words, he's godly always and everywhere. He has a God he submits to when he engages in trade, when he buys a car, when he runs his business, when he visits the DMV, when he flies across the country on one of the cut-rate airlines. Right? One who treats the unbeliever poorly and the believer with, with respect. Think of that. The one who treats an unbeliever poorly and a believer with, with respect is just a tribalist. And he can add his name to other tribalists like Black Lives Matters and the KKK. He is simply only willing to work with those who are like him. And contrarily, those who are called to elder must have lived their faith out in every path and every part of their life. And though they may not have made converts in the faith, they have at the very least gained the respect of unbelievers for their integrity. Their integrity. I'll bring this to a close again with Calvin's thoughts and his sermons on these sections. He, he went through it slower than I did. His sermons on these sections are very helpful. Um, he says, For if we will have a church amongst us, we must have this government which God has established in no wise to be broken. At the least, we must endeavor to conform ourselves to it If we have not the perfection of it, we must not cease to aspire to it and always drive at that mark which is set here down before us by the Holy Apostle. That's the key, to shoot for these marks, to grow in these marks, to pursue godliness first. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask that as we have been exhorted from your words, so we would do now in our lives, in our homes, in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our minds. Father, I pray that we would now obey. You have spoken to us, and it is now our duty to unflinchingly obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.